The Where Our Minds Wanda podcast may contain sensitive content. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings, fellow wanderers, to the places our minds wander. The house at the end of the dirt road where disembodied voices whisper and strange sounds make the living shiver. Where shadows lurk at the edge of the woods, just outside your back door. And mysterious lights speed beyond reason across the clear night sky. Odd events throughout time that lead you down the rabbit hole. I'm Wes. And I'm Beth. And this is Where Our Minds Wander. Hello and welcome to Where Our Minds Wander, all you fellow wanderers. Thank you for joining us. For those of you that are new to our podcast, each week Beth and I share stories that piqued our curiosity. Most of them are paranormal in nature, but if they're not, there's still something mysterious or weird about them. And so if you're joining us, we're assuming you also enjoy the mysterious, weird, and paranormal. And we're not doing any housekeeping tonight. We're just going to get right into our stories. So, Beth, with that said, which category does your topic fit into tonight? Well, at least two out of the three. Oh, that's not bad. No. Reminds me of a meatloaf song. (laughs) Yes, it does. (laughs) For most people who hear it, it starts between 10 and 11 p.m. every single night. For many, it sounds like an 18-wheeler idling in their neighborhood, a sort of low-frequency rumble paired with a vibration. For others, it sounds more like a buzzing, like thousands of insects swarming somewhere outside their house. It's incessant and generally registers between 30 to 60 hertz, and it never wanes. Or, if it does... It repeats a maddening pattern that cycles all night long. It obviously keeps people awake and in some cases causes headaches, nosebleeds, and stomach issues. In a few cases, it's even driving people mad to the point of selling their homes in order to escape it and to at least get a good night's sleep. It's called the hum and it's been happening all over the world since the 1970s. But what's causing it still remains a relative mystery. It all began in the UK in the 1970s. Dozens of people in rural areas were calling their local police stations, newspapers, and radio stations to complain and to ask, what the heck is it? Various theories swirled around. It was industrial, caused by local factories or processing plants. It could be technology-related, our power lines, for example, or internet cables. Some argued it was completely natural, perhaps electromagnetic charges from lightning storms. The more skeptical ones guessed that it was simply tinnitus affecting dozens of people. Some people speculated that it was CIA or military weapons testing, but a weapon made of sound waves. Some conspiracy theorists went even further afield, 
claiming it could be some sort of torture experiment being conducted by aliens. It didn't help that researchers who investigated the hum only came up with possible explanations, and that when industrial machinery was shut down or fixed, the hum didn't necessarily go away. So then, experts said it was simply the power of suggestion. One person claimed to hear it, and soon 20 or 30 more would hear it too, even though they'd never been able to hear it before. So I want to take a closer look at the hum. It was 1973 in Bristol, England, and the Bristol Evening Post received yet another letter about the constant low rumble. The nonstop noise was so bad that two people were thought to have taken their own lives in order to escape it. Researchers arrived and determined that 50 people were hearing it more often when there was a slight breeze and cooler temperatures. Looking at the weather seemed like a good place to start, and at the Institute of Biology conference held that year, scientists suggested that the hum was caused by the jet stream sliding against slower-moving air. But then they narrowed down the source to a warehouse in Avonmouth, saying the industrial fans used in the building in a town almost nine miles away was probably the culprit. And yet, when the fans stopped, the hum didn't. Then, the town of Hythe in Kent, England, had their own maddening hum. According to The Guardian, the Scottish Association for Marine Science had an explanation that had nothing to do with industrial fans. They suggested that Hythe was plagued by the vibrations from mating calls by male midshipmen fish. These fish, which emit a sort of droning sound, win their mates by being the loudest fish in the water. And so as they competed for some love, the citizens of Hythe wound up with a town-wide hum. I'm sorry, but... <laughs> Is that what we got? <laughs> the term hummer? <laughs> From the mating fish? Yeah. Could be. Apparently, it's so powerful, it can vibrate all the way up through to people's houses. In the 1980s, it was the Scottish town of Largs that was plagued by the hum next, according to HowStuffWorks.com. The low-pitched droning noise was so crippling to some residents that it brought on nosebleeds, headaches, and chest pains. See, that can't be from fish. I just... Not at all. No. To this day, the hum hasn't stopped, and in 2009, it made several newspapers, and residents were interviewed about their symptoms, including ear-popping, nausea, and memory loss, along with the usual headaches. One resident even claimed it was messing with her radio and television signals. When the Glasgow Caledonian University sent out researchers, they discovered that the hum in Largs registered between 50 and 60 hertz. Although it was suggested that it could be coming from gas pipes, mobile phone towers, wind farms, or low-frequency submarine communications, 
no definitive cause has been found. Now, many LARGS residents believe the submarine communications may be the actual culprit, that they are being subjected to the low-frequency radio transmissions between military aircraft and submerged subs. The theory does line up in that the top-secret aircraft only fly at night and that the nearby Navy base might be sending out the planes. In the United States, the most famous of all unexplained noises is probably the Taos hum of New Mexico. First noticed in the early 1990s, it sounded more like the idling 18-wheeler type of noise. According to ILFscience.com, when people tried to cover or plug their ears in order to block it out, they often gave themselves headaches, nausea, diarrhea, and fatigue. And leaving town didn't help much either, since people were reporting it a full 30 miles away. The Taos hum was so well known that extensive research was done by Joe Mullins, a professor at the University of New Mexico. Mullins and his team were able to determine a couple things. The Taos hum registered anywhere from 32 to 80 hertz, and middle-aged people were more likely to notice it. Out of the 8,000 people who took part in the study, 161 could hear the hum, so about 2% of the city's population. The team used equipment designed to monitor seismic activity and electromagnetic fields, and the only anomaly they could find was that the town's power lines were giving off a slightly higher level of electromagnetic energy than usual. But could that be the answer? People were being driven batty by electromagnetic fields? Well, EMF does have a way of messing with you. Yes. And if you've ever stood underneath power lines, you definitely hear a hum. So I could see where it'd be a, there could be a little bit of a contributing factor to it, but right. not for everything that people are experiencing. No. Well, what I had found was that there was a more recent study done in 2019 that proved that our brains, as well as those of pigeons and dogs and turtles, can sense electromagnetic fields on a cellular level. And like you said, it's true that in high doses, it can cause problems, like people are even known to hallucinate, right? Yes. With really high levels. Mm -hmm. But the team couldn't conclusively say that the power lines were to blame for the perceived constant hum. Interesting. So then the research moved more towards studying the inner ear and how the hearers of the hum were affected by it. One theory was that that 2% of Taos's population had exceptional hearing, and they were picking up sound that the majority of people just couldn't hear. But that just makes me wonder why there were more people that could hear it concentrated in Taos than anywhere else. Like, why do they have better hearing than other people? Experts and tinnitus were brought in, and they concluded that people in Taos who heard the hum could be divided into several categories, based on the type of hum they said they heard and which ear or ears they heard it in. 
That was one interesting facet of the Taos hum. Not everyone was hearing the same thing. Some people described that truck idling sound, while others said it sounded more like the buzz of a transformer or the whir of a plane's propeller. Some even said it sounded more like a chugging boat. As for which ear they heard it in, some said one, some said both, and some said that they felt it more inside their head. Their conclusion was that it could be a rare form of tinnitus affecting this large number of people. But then again, why is it only affecting these people in Taos? Lastly, the research led to the idea that the Taos hum was just a mass contagion event, like the dancing plague we mentioned in a Who'da Thunk It a few episodes ago. The bottom line, though, is that nobody really figured out the cause of the Taos hum. Also according to IFLScience.com, James Cowan included the Taos hum in his 2008 report for the International Congress on Noise as a Public Health Problem. He also included a similar hum from Kokomo, Indiana. The hum in Kokomo was first reported in 1999. Residents who could hear it went from suffering occasional headaches brought on by the hum to constant headaches that didn't go away unless they left town. They, too, began to suffer from nosebleeds and stomach issues. In 2003, the local government decided to investigate the possible cause of the hum. They narrowed it down to huge industrial fans at a nearby Daimler Chrysler plant. The fans were fixed, but the hum did not go away. Now, the hum isn't just happening in Europe and the U.S. Cities as big as Auckland, New Zealand have recorded a hum that registered 56 hertz. And then there's Windsor, Ontario, a spot that became as well known for its annoying ambient noise as Taos. In 2011, Residents of Windsor began noticing a low-pitched, vibrating noise that just always seemed to be there, day and night. It was so bad, according to a DH News article, that residents said their windows were even vibrating. It became such a concern that on just one night in early 2012, the town hall received 22,000 phone calls. When experts were called in from the University of Windsor, they quickly blamed an industrialized section of the River Rouge, which separates Windsor from Detroit, Michigan. They zeroed in on Zug Island, where a U.S.-owned steel mill was operating. When they asked to investigate the mill, the U.S. refused them access, claiming that no new equipment had been installed prior to the hum developing in Windsor. The hum persisted for nearly a decade, causing people in Windsor to worry about their mental and physical health. But the case in Windsor is the only one that has actually been solved. When the pandemic hit and the steel mill scaled back on production in April 2020, that hum went away. 
Although the cause of Windsor's hum was solved, it hasn't been that easy for other places. And new hums seem to be cropping up all over the world. It's like when one ends, another just begins. For example, the hums of Seattle, San Francisco, and most recently Tampa, Florida, have allegedly been explained by yet another type of mating fish. The fish off the coast of Tampa can apparently hit a pitch of 165 decibels underwater, and experts claim it's their ardent mating call that's traveling along the water, up through the coastline, and reverberating throughout their homes as a hum. Yeah, I don't buy that. I don't either. It's so ridiculous to me. It's caused by fish getting their freak on. I know. (laughs) But then there's a county in Missouri and a town in Ireland that have unfortunately joined the club. A low humming noise began one evening in North St. Louis County in 2022. It is low, barely audible, but it lasts for hours and seems to emanate from one particular spot. Except that spot holds zero clues. Nearby facilities, including an airport, have been investigated as sources, but so far, nothing can be pinpointed. Since September of 2023, the northern Irish town of Oma has been dealing with a strange hum, beginning between 10 and 11 every single night. They haven't been able to locate the origin there, either. Scientists have kept trying to come up with theories for these hums, including all the ones I've mentioned so far. According to an article in The Guardian, French scientists proposed back in 2015 that the worldwide cases of the hum are caused by deep ocean waves crashing against the continental shelves. Other scientists suggest it could be seismic in nature. The vibrations accompanying the hum could be due to earthquakes or volcanic eruptions or even lightning strikes. Now, with the lightning strike theory, scientists are saying that since lightning strikes the Earth 8.6 million times a day, and I did look that up because I read it and I went, no shit, it hits 8.6 million times a day. Yeah, I would have never figured that much. I fact-checked it. It freaking does. So since lightning hits the Earth 8.6 million times a day, a massive electromagnetic field builds up and it causes the air to vibrate. Now, I could see that happening. Yeah. That makes sense. But what I find so interesting about the hum and all of these theories that they're coming up with is that most of the hum phenomenon is happening in pretty big cities where there's constant noise. There's traffic, there's air conditioners, there's televisions. And yet, people are hearing the hum now more than ever. And it makes me think that it has to be environmental somehow, but due to humans. And yet, in some cases, the sound of mating fish is the best explanation we have. Yeah, it's like they said, well, I give up. (laughs) It could be anything. We're not going to delve farther into this. We'll just tell them it's the fish. It's the fish. 
In case you are interested in tracking the hum, the World Hum Map and Database is a really cool site that allows people to document where in the world that they are hearing it. The website, run by Dr. Glenn McPherson, explicitly says that they are not interested in conspiracy theories or guessing as to what is causing the hum, but they are just interested in mapping it. And it's quite the cool interactive map. You can click on any of a thousand points marked with little blue dots and then read the description that people have uploaded about their specific experience. And they are asked to answer a set of questions like their age and what the hum sounds like and how often they hear it and where exactly they are. It also asks specifically about the person taking Advil or acetaminophen right before the hum began for them. So I think it's pretty comprehensive that they're looking for all kinds of links. Well, yeah, and the good thing is they're really trying to screen out some medical conditions and and like what you might be putting into your body that could be contributing to it. Right. And I want to say some of the ones I read, they asked in the little thing that people filled out if they had ever been screened for tinnitus. Right. Yeah, because it's nasty. I mean, you know, I have it in my right ear and some days are worse than others and it'll drive you. It'll drive you nutty. And you said it is worse inside than outside, right? Yes. When I'm out in public, I don't, I'm not paying attention to it. I don't hear it. In a quiet room, when I, you know, when I get up in the morning, oh my God, it's awful. It's not something you want to live with. And fortunately, I only have it in the one ear. Yeah. I was just thinking because people are also saying with the hum that they're hearing it inside more than outside. Yeah. It's interesting. But it is pretty unnerving, too, to see a map so heavily dotted with all of these marks. Um, but if you're interested in checking it out, it's www.thehum.info. It's mating fish. <laughs> that it is. <laughs> and it's a good thing you gave them that link, because if you, if you were to type in the hum or the hummer or something like that. <laughs> We're not responsible for what comes up on your... You'd get a massive automobile. Your history. You'd get a massive automobile. Uh, yes, that's right. Right. With Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> popping out of it. He has a Hummer? Yeah, I believe so. Oh. I've only seen a couple of those in my life. They're ugly as all I was going to say that too, but then I was like, if anybody listening to us has a Hummer, we just insulted their car. Well, everybody has different taste. Well, that's true. Hey, did you know? Jonathan the tortoise, who has lived on the South Atlantic island of St. Helena since 1882, is 191 years old. Given as a gift to Sir William Gray Wilson, who later became governor of the island, Jonathan has lived out his days in the gardens, enjoying the sun. He's the second oldest living creature on Earth, which probably doesn't impress the other giant tortoises he lives with. But then again, maybe it does. Because although his sight and sense of smell aren't what they used to be, his hearing is still pretty good, and his libido is as strong as ever. Who'd have thunk it?
I think I've solved the mystery. It's Jonathan the tortoise. <laughs> He's causing the hum because of his, you know, libido. I just like saying libido. <laughs> you imagine such a child sometimes. Can you imagine he's just been, you know, kind of lazing around for 191 years. He's a giant tortoise. He doesn't see so good. He doesn't smell so good. But man, he can get it on. <laughs> it's pretty good for 191 years old. It really is. Do you think they give turtles blue pills to help <laughs> them out a little bit? No. Oh. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> All right. So where did your mind wander this week? Well, I'm not even going to give you any kind of hint. I'm just going to get right into my story and then it'll become evident. Is it weird? Oh, yeah. Is it mysterious? Yes. Is it somewhat paranormal? It's got everything. Then you have all three things that we talk about. You beat me. I only had two. Okay, go ahead and start. Robert Palfrey was out for an evening walk between the English villages of Ruffham Green and Bradfield St. George in 1860. It was June, and all of a sudden, the man was overcome by the warm night air turning strangely chilly. In a field which he could have sworn was empty only seconds before, he now saw a magnificent red brick manor tucked behind an ornate iron gate. It was surrounded by lush gardens filled with colorful flowers. He shivered in the oddly cold air as he gazed at the splendid manor house. There didn't seem to be anyone home, but the house was certainly well-loved and definitely lived in. And then, to his surprise, the entire house appeared cloaked in a mist, and then it disappeared. When Palfrey arrived home to King's Hall Street, he couldn't help but tell his family about what he had just witnessed, a house that had appeared and disappeared right before his eyes. The whole house, just, there was a whole house there and then there wasn't. That's what he's saying. According to author Carl Grove, Palfrey and his family immediately returned to the site and there was nothing but an empty field. It sounds like a plot to a movie, right? Conveniently set in the late 1800s, when people were superstitious and the veil between worlds was thin? Throw in the fact that Palfrey was walking in Rutham, which is in Suffolk, England, where all kinds of paranormal things have happened for centuries, and it's easy to dismiss his story as pure imagination, but one that an entire movie script could be based on. Except the vanishing manor house in Rutham has been seen at least four more times since Palfrey's experience, most recently in 2007. It's so well known that it's referred to as the Ruffham Mirage. Ruffham, which literally means rough village or rough enclosure, has been settled for so long that it's actually mentioned in William the Conqueror's Doomsday Book. Completed in 1086, the Doomsday Book was basically a record of all the land controlled under William the Conqueror, as a way for him to keep track of who owed him money. But communities existed in Ruffham way before that. People have found Iron Age pottery, as well as remnants of ancient Roman road and grave chambers from the 3rd and 4th centuries in the immediate area. 
And Suffolk County itself is no stranger to high strangeness. The entire area is filled with tales of mythical creatures, terrifying ghosts, and UFO encounters. For starters, the green children of Woolpit appeared in Suffolk in the 12th century, seemingly from another dimension, and there are tales of wild men carrying off unsuspecting children. Rendlesham Forest, which is sometimes referred to as England's Roswell, is in Suffolk as well. Throw in some haunted abbey ruins and haunted forests, and you could say the entire county fits under its own supernatural umbrella. So, could it very well be that there is a manor house that appears and disappears without warning? According to an article from Suffolk Live, the next sighting took place in June of 1912, although other sources say that it might have been earlier in 1908. George Waylett, a local Ruffham butcher, was making his Saturday deliveries of pork with his friend James Kobold. The two men were traveling by pony trap past an empty field. Without warning, the temperature around them dropped drastically, and they both clearly heard a whooshing sound as if something flew past them. It was so sudden and pronounced that the horse actually reared up and Waylett was thrown from the cart. Then the horse bolted off. Cobbold jumped out and helped Waylett to his feet and then went back to grab the horse, which was standing a few feet away. As he turned back around, he was shocked by what he saw. Where there had just been nothing but fields, there now stood an impressive three-story red brick manor house. Carl Grove says in his book, The Ruffham Mystery, that Kobold described the house as a double-fronted red brick in the Georgian style. The garden was made up of an oblong bed with two smaller circular beds on either side, ringed with red brick. Geraniums, pansies, and rose trees were in full bloom. Within seconds, the house was covered in some sort of mist, and then it just vanished. Waylett apparently said, That effin' house, that's about the third time I've seen that happen. According to the East Anglian Daily Times, Waylett was completely unimpressed. But Kobold was impressed and curious. Despite Waylett insisting that they should get on with their rounds, Kobold entered the field to search for any remnants of a house. He found a few random bricks in the tall grass, but nothing more. Kobold never forgot about his encounter with the Ruffham Mirage, and in 1975, he wrote an article about it for Amateur Gardening Magazine. In the article, Kobold said that he had first heard about the Mirage from a childhood friend when he was 11 or 12 years old, but that he had laughed it off. Again, according to Grove's book, Kobold went home and mentioned the story to his grandmother, and she really surprised him by telling him that her own father had seen it for himself. Now it turns out Kobold, who was using a pen name, was actually Robert Palfrey's great-grandson. So whether that sends up red flags to those of you listening, if you're thinking that maybe Kobold was just repeating family lore and making it his own, there have actually been more sightings of the Ruffham Mirage by people who have never heard of it before and were not related to Palfrey in any way. In October of 1923, schoolteacher Ruth Wynn and a 10-year-old student 
were out for a walk. The pair were heading towards the church in Bradfield, St. George. As the two wandered along, they passed a farm and then came out onto a road bordered by a high wall made of bricks painted a yellowish-green. They followed the wall for a bit, and eventually it opened into an iron gate before resuming with the brick wall. Beyond the wall were some tall trees, and beyond that, the two of them could just make out the corner of a roof. They stopped to look at it and to comment on what a grand house it must be. Neither of them were super knowledgeable about the area, though. So when Ruth returned home, she asked her parents who might live there. Her parents had no idea. In fact, no one Ruth asked seemed to know, since they insisted that there was no grand house out on that road. Ruth and her young student didn't go out that way again for another year. But in February or March, they decided to look for the grand house. They took the exact same route as the time before. But as they passed through the farmyard and came out onto the road, there wasn't any brick wall. Even though they followed the road all the way to Bradfield St. George, they never found a brick wall or an iron gate or a magnificent manor house. It's so weird. It's very weird. It's such a strange story. I can picture this happening for some reason. Yeah. It's reasonable to wonder two things about Ruth's encounter. First, neither Palfrey or Cobbled mentioned a painted brick wall in their accounts. And second, what if Ruth Wynne had somehow made a mistake and didn't go the exact same route the second time? And that's why she couldn't find the mystery manor. Authors and journalists who have extensively researched the Ruffa Mirage think she did see the vanishing house that very first time. But unlike Palfrey and Cobbled, she and the child actually approached the house from the back. And her not finding it the second time just solidifies that it actually happened. In the 1940s, the men's fashion company, Auburn Davies, would send out their employees right after harvest time, hoping to cash in on farmers' harvest bonuses. Edward Bentley was hoping to make some sales, so he loaded up some catalogs into his friend's car, set out to visit all the towns around St. Edmunds. Chris Romer, who is the author of The Vanishing House, A Real Ghost Story, writes that Bentley and his friend were driving through Ruffham along South Hall Street when Bentley spotted a fancy Georgian-style manor house. Thinking that it would be a great spot to stop and offer a catalog, Bentley asked his friend to stop and reverse up the road a bit. They did, and Bentley was filled with confusion and embarrassment when his friend demanded to know what house he was talking about, because there wasn't any house. Apparently, the rough and mirage had appeared again. Sandra Hardwick was 14 years old in the summer of 1976. One evening, she had ridden her bike to meet some friends at the local hangout on Kings Hall Street. Wanting to get home before dark, she hopped back on her bike and headed home to Freewood Farm. She had traveled this route before, of course, so as she approached two bungalow-style houses, she was pretty shocked to notice a grand house on the right side that she had never seen before. Carl Groves wrote that Sandra claimed 
It was eerily quiet, and the summer evening became unnaturally cold. But the house was lit up like it was the middle of a summer's day. She said in an interview, I thought I was going bonkers. It was beautiful. Thatched roof, windows open, and a garden with yellow and pink flowers. A fence and a gate. It's, you know what? Something about the gate. I don't know what it is. But something about the gate. It's the gate. It's welcoming you in. It's in every story. And you shouldn't enter because I bet you if you do. You can't get back out? You're not coming back out. <laughs> the evil smile across the darkened studio. <laughs> <laughs> now, granted, it doesn't sound exactly like the manor house other witnesses had described. But Sandra was frightened just as much by it. She raced home as quickly as she could, saying that by the time she reached the Baptist church at the end of Kings Hall Street, the house had completely vanished from the street. When she told her mother what she had seen, her mom initially didn't believe her. But when she asked around and found out that other people had seen the Ruffham Mirage, she began to believe that her daughter had seen it too. In an interview in the Suffolk Journal, Sandra said, The windows were very small, but open with curtains blowing, and it was a happy, carefree, friendly house. It had a thatched roof. It was like a perfect country cottage that everyone wants to live in, but there was nobody there. Most recently in 2007, a woman and her husband were out for a Sunday afternoon drive. Jean Batram, told the East Anglian Daily Times that she and her husband were on King's Hall Street, heading into the village of Ruffham. They had never been this way before, and as they drove through the town, they came upon a recently harrowed field. Jean was impressed by the stately red brick Georgian house that was set back in the field, so impressed that she told her husband that on the way back, she wanted to stop the car so they could get a better look at it. She described the house as a lovely big Georgian house with a whole row of long windows and trees at the back of it. Later, as the couple turned around and headed home, Jean anticipated seeing the lovely house yet again. But as they drove and fields came into view, she was puzzled. She asked her husband if they were on the same road as before. He assured her that they were, but the lovely brick manor house was nowhere to be seen. And you know what's creepy is that we've done things like that before, where we're going somewhere we've never been and we're on, you know, back roads going through villages of New York and Vermont. And we'll see a house and we'll be like, wow, look at that house. And then, you know, we turn around and we come home and we see the house again. Right. So it's got to be freaky to know that you're on the same road and you're looking for this house and you never pass it. Yeah, it'd be really freaky. <laughs> I kind of want to have that experience. I kind of do too, if, I, if I'm if i honest. <laughs> Jean definitely thought it was odd. And when she found out that Ruffham locals knew about the vanishing house, she felt a little bit better. Although she was even more intrigued than ever. So what's the deal behind the Ruffham Mirage? Are people hallucinating? Are they witnessing a time slip? And more importantly, was there ever a brick Georgian house there? The answer is just as confusing as the Mirage itself. 
Robert Palfrey claimed that he saw the vanishing house in 1860. But Georgian architecture fell out of favor around 1830, indicating that if there was a house there once, at least some locals should have remembered it. When researchers looked at the local area maps, they were able to find proof that some sort of house did stand in the area in the early 18th century, and then by the early 1800s, it no longer appeared on the maps. Locals will say that perhaps the house was called King's Hall, but they wouldn't swear to that. It's interesting that the street is King's Hall Street, and that's just weird because it, they keep seeing it off of King's Hall Street. Right. So you would think that maybe they would think that this street had to be named after some manor or some house. Right. That's what I would assume. Right. But it is interesting to note that Georgian architecture was popular from about 1740 to 1770. Chris Romer, in his article, The Vanishing House, A Real Ghost Story, points out that field researchers did determine that another large house does stand in the vicinity, and it is possible that witnesses were actually seeing this house, except for the fact that it doesn't look anything like the manor house that people have insisted that they saw. Well, of course not, because it's not the right house. <laughs> yeah, I'd be willing to bet that myself, even though I haven't been there. But he does go on to say that there is a path down the center of the woods where Ruth Wynn claims she was walking in the 1920s. Or at least a depression where the trees seem to line the sides, which are higher. So it implies that there was a road there. It does. It implies that there was once a carriage road. Yeah. And I've seen them out in the woods, the old carriage roads mm -hmm. or the 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 stage coach stops mm -hmm. yeah they're pretty cool when he and a friend scraped away the earth they did find evidence of a former brick wall made up of yellowish green bricks so cool so are people experiencing a time slip yes <laughs> that was quick <laughs> I mean, there could be. There are certainly stories out there of it happening, like lone motorists who are having car trouble, and they come upon a brightly lit but somewhat out-of-date-looking gas station in the middle of nowhere. They receive the assistance that they desperately need and promise to return the next day with payment, except when they do return, they find that the gas station has appeared abandoned for decades. Or... Lone roadside bars that are hopping one night, and when patrons return a week or two later, the bar is nothing but a desolate shell, looking as though no one has opened its doors in decades. That's true. We've heard those stories. That we have. There is a couple out there, a married couple, that had an experience like this, and they wrote a book. Mm-hmm. Or there are more personal time slip stories, like the ones where people swear they see a stranger in the kitchen or living room, dressed in a particular piece of clothing. And then years later, as they're standing in their kitchen or living room, they realize that that person was themselves. We have such a strange relationship with time, especially since how we keep track of it 
is an entirely man-made construct. Right. And my mom used to try and freak me out uh, whenever we flew from Japan to the U.S. There's a 14-hour time difference. And she'd always tell me that we got to do the same day all over again because we hadn't done it right the first time. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like Groundhog Day. Yeah. <laughs> Your parents, they, they, uh, they messed with you a little bit. They did. They? they did. So our sense of time is based entirely on how we agree to keep track of it. And then if you get into the whole concept of multiple dimensions and string theory, you could argue that time slips are possible. But if it's a time slip, why is it happening in the village of Ruffham? Author Carl Grove has offered up his own explanation. As a paranormal researcher, he has referenced cases of whirling vortexes, areas where energy has been altered due to people using metal detectors or dowsing rods. So, It'd be interesting to see if Ruffham locals have been using those things in that spot. Stirring up the energy. I don't buy it, though. <laughs> I'm sorry. No to the mating fish and no to the dowsing rods. Well, metal detectors and dowsing rods right. stirring up electrical energy. No, just doesn't seem right to me. But he's allowed to have his theory. Of course. I'm sure a lot of people out there have their own. Right. After hearing this. The Vanishing House in Ruffham, or the Ruffham Mirage, is definitely a cool phenomenon. And since there seems to be a 20 to 30 year gap between sightings, we are most definitely due for another one sometime soon. Ooh. I just had an idea. Oh, God. You ready? Sure. Okay. So, what if the seven or eight people that you mentioned who have experienced the mirage, what if they're all reincarnated and at one point all of them either lived or worked at the manor? And that's why they see it. Well. <laughs> I mean, come on, it could be. It could be. For those people that believe in reincarnation, and I think there is a possibility of it, Um. Sure, why not? I mean, that theory is as good as any of them out there. And that's why it's not a huge number of people who have seen it. But, huh. Right. Until, say, maybe they went out with some LIDAR or found a basement or something like that to prove there actually was a huge manor house there. Right. Then it's all just theory. Yeah, they just and, need to ask the landowner and get some permission and get out there and look. Right. So cool. I uh, want to see it. What happens if somebody builds a brand new house right where the mirage pops in and out? That would be catastrophic. It would pop up right in what would happen. Well, nothing. Since it's a mirage. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I can see where you're going with it. Unless, it looks pretty funky. Unless the new house would cover the vortex would close it if it's a vortex. Yeah, I, I don't know. We could go on and on I about know. this. I know. I mean, who knows? It's definitely cool, though. Very cool. I'm glad you found it. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I do. You know, you think I'm just sitting around during the day 
you know, <laughs> playing on my phone, maybe like a coloring game like someone does. Um, I'm actually researching. Wow. And I'm looking for cool stories. Wow. That's very interesting. That's how it is, huh? Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, as always, if any of you would like to know more about The Hum or about the Rafa Mirage, you could always check our sources in our show notes. I'm sure there's much more there that we didn't get into. In fact, I know there is. Right. Well, like we've said before, we break them down and condense them so we get as much as possible into, you know, a show. Right. Because some of these could go on and on and on for weeks. And nobody wants that. No. And that's where it's a good jumping off point because if they are, you know, if you are interested, you can start delving into it for yourselves. And solve it. <gasps> Somebody out there needs to solve it. Maybe one of our listeners will. I know. But with that said, if any of you listeners have heard the hum or seen the mirage for yourselves or know someone who has, go ahead and post it on our Facebook page. Which they should be able to do now that we fixed it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that people couldn't post to it. <laughs> so all this time we're asking people to post things and they couldn't. <laughs> Which, you know, if you weren't researching all the time instead of playing coloring games on your phone right maybe you would have noticed that people couldn't post things right yeah it's all my fault <laughs> well thank you again for joining us we'll see you all next week for all new episode of where our minds wander see you soon